Welcome to Finance Explained, where you'll get the top financial headlines of the week, along with an explanation of what it all means and why it matters to you. Hey everyone, I'm Megan, the Family Finance Mom, and welcome to Finance Explained. This week, I've got three major financial headlines for you. The S&P 500 closed Friday at a new all-time high, now up 5% year-to-date, while the NASDAQ continues to trail. Ten-year treasuries also hit their highest yields in a year on Friday. What's driving this bifurcated performance in the market, and what does it mean for you? Last week, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released the Consumer Price Index for February, attracting more attention than usual given the market's concerns about inflation. How much have prices increased over the last year, and are people still concerned? And the biggest financial news of the last week, the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, officially known as the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, officially became law on Thursday, and stimulus checks already started to hit accounts on Friday. What do you need to know about the benefits you may be eligible to receive, and what are some hurdles to implementation? After that, we will take a deep dive into interest rates. Rising interest rates are driving a lot of the impacts in the overall markets right now, and many of you have questions about who decides what rates will be, how does the Fed impact rates overall, and what determines different rates you pay, like your mortgage rate. Now let's dig into the three biggest financial headlines of the week. Up first, the stock market. In the stock market, we continue to see recovery hopes and inflation concerns drive outperformance of cyclical small cap and value stocks over growth in tech stocks, which are essentially flat year to date after outperforming dramatically during 2020. The S&P 500 is now up 5% year to date while the Dow Jones Industrial Average, composed of only 30 large companies, is up more than 7% this year. The tech-heavy NASDAQ is just better than flat, up 0.4% for 2021, while the Russell 2000, a small-cap stock index, is up almost 20% year-to-date. So what's driving this bifurcation in performance? Largely, recovery expectations. Economic recovery fuels greater interest in short-term stock performance. This tends to favor more cyclical sectors like financials, industrials, and consumer discretionary names as we enter the recovery phase of the economic cycle. During the recession, the market looks through short-term performance in favor of names that are likely to perform best in the long run. This tends to favor higher growth sectors like tech. So does this mean you need to trade out of tech and into whatever's rallying? No. Hopefully you are all investing for the long term and with a well-diversified portfolio. So you got the benefits of tech last year and now get the benefits of cyclical stocks too. In the bond market, we see long-term interest rates continuing to rise, driving bond prices down. Both 10-year and 30-year treasuries hit their highest yields in a year on Friday at 1.63%, and 2.39% respectively, an increase of nearly 80 and 50% since the start of the year. Longer-term interest rates are rising, spurred by the hopes of the economic recovery, as well as inflation concerns, and the significant issuance of Treasury bonds necessary to fund the $1.9 trillion stimulus package. 
The rates on 30-year treasuries now surpass pre-pandemic levels at the end of 2019. This has driven the yield curve, which I'll talk more about in our deep dive momentarily, to be more steeply upward sloping, which is representative of a more normal and growing economic environment. Compare it to the yield curve last March, which saw long-term treasury rates hitting their lowest levels ever. Back then, the yield curve was inverted, which is predictive of a recessionary environment. While interest rates still remain relatively low, historically speaking, it is the rapid change in long-term rates that is driving impacts in the stock market currently and continuing to fuel inflation concerns. This brings me to the release of the Consumer Price Index this week for February. The Consumer Price Index, or CPI, is an economic measure commonly used as a proxy for inflation. It measures the price change in a fixed weight basket of goods and services commonly purchased by households, like food, energy, services, and more. For February, CPI was up 1.7% year over year. This is up from 1.4% in January. Year to date, the CPI is up 0.6% in just two months. Recall from our deep dive discussion of inflation last week that the Fed targets 2% long-run average inflation for a stable market environment, but that they also have said they plan to allow it to run above 2% for a period of time as it has been below 2% over the last year. Components of the CPI have been significantly above 2%, most notably and visibly to families, food. Food prices were up 3.6% year-over-year in February. Also very visible to families, energy prices are now up too. Over the last year, energy prices had been down significantly, serving as an offset to increases in other areas like food and helping keep overall CPI increases down. But now, energy prices are up again. According to the CPI, up 2.4% year-over-year in February. The lack of energy is offset to other price increases as we head into the rest of 2021 alone could be enough to push CPI increases over 2%. Some other notable areas in the CPI report where prices are increasing dramatically, appliances up over 7% year-over-year, household paper products up nearly 9%, used cars up over 9% as well, and sporting goods were up 4.6%. So where are prices falling in the CPI to offset those increases? Apparel. Apparel was down 3.6% year over year, especially formal apparel like men's suits and women's dresses, which were both down nearly 17% in prices. Anything travel related is down. Travel lodging is down 17% and airline fares are down over 25%. Entertainment is also down big. Sporting event ticket prices are down 14%. A quick reminder from last week's discussion on inflation, CPI is just one indicator for inflation. The Fed actually focuses on the PCE price index, though they track similarly. I'll continue to track both the CPI and the PCE price index as 2021's Inflation Watch continues. Last but not least, and arguably the biggest financial news of the last week impacting your family finances, the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, officially known as the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, was passed by the House on Wednesday and signed into law by President Biden on Thursday. 
And the first $1,400 stimulus checks actually hit some people's bank accounts via direct deposit on Friday. Now that it's passed the political hurdle of becoming law, the next real test will be implementation. Issuing stimulus checks is straightforward enough, but other changes like the expanded child tax credit, eliminating taxes on the first $10,200 of unemployment benefits from 2020, when many families may have already filed their taxes, those create some challenges. The IRS, for one, will be making significant changes to the tax code at the very same time they are processing tax returns, and those who have already filed may have to file amended returns to claim some of these benefits. There are also new programs being created at a range of federal agencies, and it will be up to each agency to ensure the programs are created quickly so funds can be effectively distributed and reach their intended beneficiaries. One of the concerns leading up to this bill is that not all the stimulus funds that have already been approved have even been spent. There is a federal site, usaspending.gov, that tracks how much of the stimulus funds have been spent to date. It has not yet been updated for the latest $1.9 trillion bill, but it shows that of the $2.7 trillion that were already approved prior to last week, only $1.9 has already been paid out with another $300 million committed or promised, but that leaves nearly $500 billion that remains unutilized entirely. For those with questions about various components of the bill, I highly encourage you to start by referencing the full text of the bill itself. You can search for specific components like child tax credit or unemployment to get all the details of exactly what the law says in the area that is most interested to you. It's linked up in the show notes, We'll also get more clarity on implementation from the IRS in the days and weeks to come, so stay tuned. Now for this week's deep dive. Let's talk about interest rates. How are they set? How does the Fed's policies impact them? And how do they ultimately determine the rates that you pay on everything from loans to mortgages? Understanding interest rates and how they work might be the single most important concept in finance. It is the basis for most financial decision-making and how we compensate for all sorts of risk. So if you can learn how they work and why they change, you will be well on your way to building your financial acumen. I'm going to start at the most basic level and build from there, while also addressing a lot of the questions I receive from followers along the way. First, What is an interest rate? In the simplest of terms, interest rates are what you are charged when you borrow money. On the flip side, it's also what you expect to be paid when you lend money. In finance, we use interest rates to compensate for risk. The more risk involved, the higher the interest rate you will pay or expect to be paid. Interest rates are typically calculated as a percentage rate relative to a principal amount and quoted on an annual basis. So why are they called so many different things, rate, yield, APR, APY? Typically, interest rates are quoted annually, telling you the interest rate you will pay on the principal balance of what you borrow on an annual basis. An APR, annual percentage rate, will also include any and all additional fees associated with the transaction like for a mortgage, including closing costs and origination fees. 
If you are shopping for the best rate on a mortgage or a car loan, comparing APRs between different banks will tell you which offers you the best overall deal, accounting for not only the interest rate, but also all of the fees. An APY, annual percentage yield, is the real annualized rate you pay once compounding is taken into account. If a mortgage has a rate of 3% but is compounded monthly, the APY will actually be a little higher, 3.04%. If it's compounded daily, which some debts do, it will be even higher, 3.045%. It may not seem like much of a difference, but over time, the impact of compounding and how often you do it gets bigger and bigger. You can find the mathematical formulas and detailed definitions of both of these in the Family Finance Mom Glossary, also linked in today's show notes. So what's the difference between interest rates and yields? This gets a little more technical, but think of yield more as a rate of return relative to current market prices. A 10-year treasury bond currently yields 1.63%. If a 10-year treasury bond was issued for the very first time today, that would also be the interest rate set on the bond. But once it's issued, that interest rate is still set for the next 10 years. As market rates change, the price of the bond rises or falls so that the 1.63% interest rate the bond pays equals a yield equivalent to the new market rate. Here's an example. If 10-year yields increased overnight to 2%, the $1,000 bond with a 1.63% interest rate just issued yesterday would now sell for only $815. Why? Because the 1.63% interest on the original $1,000 bond equaled a $16.30 of payment annually for it now to yield 2%, the bond price you're willing to pay is only $815. $16.30 divided by $815 equals the 2% yield. This is how you get the inverse relationship between bond prices and bond yields. Because once a debt or bond is issued, the interest rate is set. The market adjusts the price to reflect where they believe current yields should be. If market rates or yields increase relative to the bond's interest rate, the price of the bond falls. If market rates decrease versus the bond's interest rate, the price of the bond rises. Now, what determines these market rates and why do they move or change over time? Interest rates are determined by a handful of risk factors. Some are market-specific affecting all interest rates in every issuer or borrower similarly. This is known as rate risk. From a lender's perspective, rate risk is the risk that the market interest rates rise versus the rate you've agreed to receive. Inflation is the biggest part of rate risk. Higher inflation expectation drives market interest rates higher. If I think that my dollar next year is going to have less purchasing power than it does now, When I lend you money, I expect to be compensated for that increase in inflation through higher interest rates. The impact of rate risk is also greater the longer dated the loan is. There's a greater likelihood of rates increasing over the life of, say, a 30-year treasury bond than over the life of a three-month treasury bill. 
This is why higher interest rates are charged the longer dated the loan or maturity of the bond. It's why when you look at a yield curve, at least in normal economic environments, the yield gets higher as maturity, when the bonds are due, increases. A yield curve simply plots the yield of each debt with different maturities issued by the same borrower. Most typically, we see the yield curve for the U.S. government. U.S. Treasury bills and bonds are issued in all ranges of maturities, from as short as a three-month Treasury bill to two, three, five, 10, 20, and even 30-year Treasury bonds. As of Friday's market close, the U.S. government yield curve looks something like this. From three-month bond yields, also known as Treasury bills, yielding 0.033%, all the way up to 30-year bonds yielding 2.393%. Note how the yield got higher as maturity increased. The yields on 5, 10, and 30-year Treasuries are now at or very near the highest they have been in a year. Now, the U.S. government as a borrower is viewed as the lowest possible credit risk there is. So when we look at the U.S. government yield curve, we essentially are looking at pure rate risk, and it increases the longer dated your maturity gets. Credit risk on the other, is the other major factor associated with interest rates. Credit risk is the risk associated with an individual borrower. Every other borrower will pay a premium or a higher interest rate relative to the U.S. Treasury yield based on their specific credit risk. It's why the average 30-year mortgage rate isn't the same as the rate on 30-year treasuries. It has to be higher to account for your individual credit risk, but it's also not as high as it would be if you didn't have an asset, your house, to back it up. One of the questions I got from followers was, who sets these different rates? Great question. When I say market yields, I truly mean it's a market rate. The market sets the rates on the yield curve. Buyers and sellers of existing U.S. Treasury bonds set current yields. Where investors are willing to buy and sell Treasury bonds determines current yields. And current yields set where the interest rate at which new bonds can be issued. And this isn't some tiny market either. Trade reporting data from FINRA shows for the week of 226 that $5.6 trillion worth of treasury bonds were traded. That's $1.1 trillion worth of bonds a day. There's a massive actively traded treasury bond market that sets market rates from three months to 30 years, and all other credits get priced relative to it. So then where does the Federal Reserve come in? The Fed has two main tools they use to enact monetary policy goals that can impact interest rates. As an aside, the FOMC meets eight times a year, including this week, to review monetary policy and enact any changes. The Federal Open Market Committee is composed of 12 members, the seven members of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, the President of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and four of the remaining 11 Reserve Bank presidents, who serve one-year terms on a rotating basis. They will issue a press release on Wednesday, following their two-day meeting, giving their official statement on monetary policy, announcing any changes they are making, as well as why their monetary policy is what it is. 
you will hear them talk about both of these tools in that statement. First, the federal funds rate. The federal funds rate is the target interest rate set by the FOMC that commercial banks borrow and lend excess reserves to each other overnight. What does that mean in English? By law, all banks have to keep some of their deposits at a Federal Reserve Bank, one of 12 around the country. They have to meet a reserve requirement equal to a certain percentage of their deposits, and it has to be kept in an account at a Federal Reserve Bank. This is to ensure they always have enough money on hand to cover your withdrawals and meet any other daily obligations. To prevent you ever going to your bank and them telling you, oops, sorry, we can't give you your money today because we don't have any. Now, if one bank has more in reserves than they need and another has a temporary shortfall, the one with excess reserves can lend to the other at the federal funds rate overnight. The lower the federal funds rate, the more flexible banks can be in lending. It won't cost them too much if they lend more and fall short of their reserve requirements. Back in March of 2020, the FOMC set the federal funds target rate at 0 to 0.25%. The actual rate charged is negotiated between the two banks, but the Federal Reserve publishes the effective federal funds rate, what banks are actually borrowing and lending at overnight. For the last month, it's been at 0.07%. As a point of history, the federal funds rate was as high as 20% in the early 1980s when the Fed was trying to rein in inflation. High rates mean banks will more strictly observe reserve requirements and be less flexible in lending, tightening credit, tightening the money supply, and lowering inflation. Lower Fed funds rates means banks can be more flexible, loosening credit, increasing money supply, and encouraging growth. So while the federal funds rate is actually the overnight lending rate for banks and not the U.S. government, it still sets the tone for one, overall market liquidity, and two, short-term lending rates. The market overall also pays a lot of attention to it because the Fed uses it to impact overall monetary policy. So it's kind of a big deal. What about the second tool? In 2008, in the midst of the financial crisis that caused the Great Recession, the Fed started using quantitative easing, or QE. The Fed uses its own balance sheet to purchase longer-term U.S. Treasury bonds on the open market, just like another investor, in order to quickly increase the money supply. They also buy mortgage-backed securities as well. Buying the bonds adds new money to the economy while also lowering long-term interest rates by putting another big buyer into the market. More demand for long-term treasury bonds increases bond prices, which lowers market yields. It also gives banks and other financial institutions who held these securities cash that they can now use to hopefully provide loans to households and businesses who need it. Quantitative easing is used as a tool when interest rates are near or approaching zero, like now when the Fed Fund's target rate is already effectively zero. In March of 2020, the FOMC expanded QE purchases to an unlimited amount to aid the economy in the pandemic. After its most recent FOMC meeting at the end of January 2021, the Fed stated 
it will continue to increase its holding of treasury securities by at least $80 billion per month and of agency mortgage-backed securities by at least $40 billion per month until substantial further progress has been made toward the committee's maximum employment and price stability goals. These asset purchases help foster smooth market functioning and accommodative financial conditions, thereby supporting the flow of credit to households and businesses. The Fed is essentially printing money and putting it into circulation when they engage in quantitative easing. So a negative consequence of it can be devaluation of currency and inflation. The Fed, however, can also act in reverse to offset inflation. They can sell the bonds and securities they now hold on their balance sheet back into the open market, taking money out of circulation and reducing the money supply. This Fed tool, quantitative easing, is coming under the most scrutiny in the current environment as inflation concerns continue to grow. I will be paying close attention to their statement this week to see if they make any changes to their QE purchase targets. So that's what determines interest rates, how things like inflation, time, and credit risk impact rates, and how they are largely determined by the free market, but how and where the Federal Reserve plays its role too. Be sure to check out the FOMC press release on Wednesday to see if they announce anything to impact interest rates this week. Have a question about the economy or financial markets you'd like to hear covered on Finance Explained? Leave me a voice message. Just click the link in the show notes to record a message with your question or topic of interest, and I just might feature you on our next episode. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to catch each weekly episode of Finance Explained. I'd also love and appreciate your reviews. They are really critical for new podcasts especially. Thanks so much for your support. So that's it for this week's episode of Finance Explained by Family Finance Mom. I hope each week to build and expand your financial literacy, help you understand not only the week's headlines, but how they relate to you, and also you can make better financial decisions for yourself, your family, and your futures. <music>